If you would, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 40. If you have your uh, bulletin inside is, is, is a handout that has notes to follow along in and might help you today. We're going to be looking at this chapter this morning um, under three headings. Uh, the first, Joseph in the place of the guilty. The second, Joseph in the place of the forgotten. And the third, Joseph in the place of God's promise. And so that is what we're going to be looking at today. If you would join me in prayer as we approach God's Word. Heavenly Father, as we come to your Word, speak to your people, speak words of truth that comfort us, that strengthen us, that guide us as we walk through this dark world. Through the truth of the gospel, amen, amen. If you were to Google sermons on Genesis 40, the first one likely to pop up, at least it did for me consistently, um, out of curiosity, (laughs) was on Bible.org, and it was titled, How to Get Out of the Pits. I thought that was interesting largely because... uh, Joseph doesn't get out of the pit in this chapter. Um, But aside from that, even if he did, and he eventually does, this text is not about how to get out of the pits. In fact, that Joseph's life, though he will eventually get out and be exalted, the, the point of this chapter is drives home the fact that he is forgotten and he is left right there in the prison, as he calls it, the pit. Imagine with me, though, John the Baptist. Fast forward from our time with Joseph. John the Baptist, he had this text. And imagine if John the Baptist thought that the point of this text was how to get out of the pits. Then we would have to suppose that had he applied the text appropriately, he would not have been beheaded, but rather would have been delivered. Or we would have to suppose that this text had no meaning for him. But I think otherwise, in relation to this text. A how-to-get-out-of-the-pits message, aside from being man-centered rather than God-centered, I don't know what just happened. I think that was God saying, yes, God-centered is better than man-centered, yes. Um, (laughs) But it, it has the whole other problem of missing the point of the text. Now, another approach to this text might be uh, that we look at it through the lens of one's favorite doctrine. So, for instance, we could look at it through the lens of relationships. I, I love relationships, and Jesus was all about relationships, and the Bible's all about relationship. And so here you see Joseph, he's in prison, and these two other prisoners are put there, and he has such a good relationship with them that they open up to him and share their dreams, and he's able to tell that they're depressed, and And if we are going to win the world, we too have to relate with people and begin to connect to them. Now, that sounds silly, but you know what? There are plenty of sermons that are as tied to the text as that was. Okay, another way we could do it, not as bad, by the way. If I'm all about winning the lost, I might use Joseph's conversations with the cupbearer and the baker as ways that we too need to speak to the lost. In one case, he tells them the good news. In the other case, he tells them the bad news. And if we're going to preach the gospel, we've got to tell them both the good news and the bad news. And we need to know our audience. And yeah, not as bad, but again, not 
what this text is really driving at. What is this story about? Well, not just one thing, there are several things, but if I were to try to capture it in under one umbrella, I might say it this way. I might say it's about what it looks like to have God's blessing on your life while you are suffering serious injustices by those who have significant power over you. Of course, you can't make a title out of that because it's a little long, unless, of course, you happen to be a Puritan. They can make titles that are six sentences long, but might explain where they went. But anyway... So if we're going to maybe make a title out of that, we might say serving the Lord often lands you in a pit. But that won't sell many books. <laughs> but capturing both the God-centeredness and the human element of the text, maybe we would say it this way, how God has provided hope for His people when they find themselves in the pit of persecution or unjust suffering. How God has provided hope for His people when they find themselves in the pit of persecution, or we might say unjust suffering. So if you would, read with me. Under our heading, Joseph in the place of the guilty, beginning in Genesis 40 and verse 1. Sometime later, the cupbearer and the baker of uh, of the king of Egypt, that's Pharaoh, offended or literally sinned against their master, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was angry with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the same prison or the same house where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph and he attended them. After they had been in custody for some time, now, by the way, the sentence should end there. I know it goes on in our English translations, but... That's its own sentence, so it might read better. They were in prison for some time. End of sentence. So we're going to pause there. It begins in verse 1, sometime later. Now you have to remember, therefore, that we ended the last story, last week we looked at, with Joseph having been falsely charged by Mrs. Potiphar. Remember the story of Potiphar's wife trying to seduce him? And he won't, he flees, and she tears off his clothes as he's running out of the house. And now that's her evidence that, look, what well, he tried to rape me. He even left his clothes here. So, he's toast. And he lands in this jail. And Mr. Potiphar likely doesn't buy Mrs. Potiphar's story, or worse. He doesn't really care. So, Joseph landed in what we would call a white-collar crime type of prison for all the rich people to go to. Not the hard maximum security. Not, but, and and it keeps, they keep referring to it in the original language as a house, not because it wasn't a jail, but because it was the kind of jail, and we have remains of these kinds of jails, where the captain of the guard in, in, in Egyptian life would, would have attached to his house a bit of a dungeon I mean, underneath a basement uh, that was part of the house, but was where high-end criminals were kept. It wasn't nearly as bad as, say, hard labor or some horrible place that they might go. A much better place than that, but nonetheless, a dungeon. So you can kind of figure it out. Not a place you'd want to be or I'd want to be. And that's where Joseph is, and that's where these two land with him. Now, Joseph finds favor with the prison warden, we learned last week, because the Lord was with him and showed him kindness, hesed, faithful love. And so he ends up being in charge of the other prisoners under the warden. 
Some time passes, is what we're told. Some time later. We don't know how long, but some time is passing. Then two new prisoners arrive. They arrive because they sinned against their master. Now remember, right at the end of the last chapter, or in the, the story of the last chapter, is that Joseph refused to sin against his master. And he refused to sin against God. And he's in this dungeon, but he's in there now with these two people and others that he's specifically in charge of that are guilty. They did sin against their master. So Joseph is in the place of the guilty, even though he's innocent. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, was angry with these two. Furious, we might say. And then notice this funny little thing that we we may have past I had missed it for years but they're in the house of the guard of the captain of the guard well we were told at the beginning of the previous chapter that the captain of the guard's name was Potiphar so Joseph by all accounts while there could have been another captain of the guard the story leads us to believe and implies strongly that Joseph is in a jail that's attached to the house of Potiphar his previous master who logically then does put him in charge under the warden of everything else because he trusts him. And I'm suspecting he wants to keep him close, as close as possible. And so it would make sense for Potiphar to assign these two high officials, a cupbearer and a baker we wouldn't think of as being that important. I mean, like, you know, if you think of the, the, the White House, you might think, well, these guys are cooking in the back kitchen. No. These people were high officials because they had to be very trusted to reach that level. And so for, the, for Pharaoh to be mad at them means they probably did something bad. <laughs> and the job itself was high end, so they're going to be cared for particularly. Now remember, last week, Joseph took care of everything in Potiphar's life except what? His food and drink. Now Joseph gets thrown in jail, and he's now in charge of the two people that take care of Pharaoh's food and drink. So in a matter of speaking, his going to jail is a promotion. He gets to take care of the ones who take care of this for not his boss, but somebody above his boss, Pharaoh himself. Now this goes on for some time, we're told again. So twice we have this reference to the passing of time so that we're aware that Joseph is is languishing here. It's lingering. It's, It's been a long time. He's probably beginning to wonder what is going on. There Joseph is, the innocent one, in the place of the guilty. There are two guilty ones beside him. And as we will see, one will be restored into his place in the kingdom, and the other will not. And Joseph has a request of the one that will be restored to his place in the kingdom, remember me when you get there. But he does not remember him as we get to the end of our story today. It's just a preview. (laughs) But that again sounds so familiar, does it not? Jesus, the innocent one, was condemned with two guilty criminals by his side. One asked Jesus to remember him when he came into his kingdom, and Jesus, in this case, did remember him when he came into his kingdom. For Jesus suffered so that that criminal could be forgiven. You see, only God can write stories with the events of human history in order to make his work known. 
It did it 1,700 years in advance of Jesus coming so that we might recognize him. Now look with me at the second heading. Joseph in the place of the forgotten. Joseph was in the place of the guilty. Now Joseph is in the place of the forgotten. Verse 5. Each of the two men, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were being held in prison or the house, had a dream the same night. And each dream had a meaning of its own. When Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected. So he asked Pharaoh's officials who were in custody with him in his master's house, why do you look so sad today? We both had dreams, they answered. But there is no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. Now, the mention of these two dreams immediately should remind us that Joseph himself had two dreams. We saw those back in chapter 37. Of course, those two dreams are what got Joseph in trouble with his brothers and their jealousy along with a coat, and he ends up in a, in a pit then, right? A cistern. And sold into slavery, so that has something to do with why he's here. But those dreams promised him that one day... His whole family would bow down to him. That he would in some way lead them and they would be subservient to him. So the question is still hanging in the air. And we're reminded of it by these two dreams that are brought to Joseph. Whether Joseph is a prophet or whether whether he's merely a dreamer. You see, having a dream, even a prophetic dream like these cupbearer and baker have, does not make one a prophet. The question is, can Joseph hear from the Lord concerning the meaning of dreams that are about the future? In Genesis 37, those dreams were about the future, but to date, it's not looking so good. Uh, I think his brothers have pretty much forgotten about him, other than the plagued conscience that they have when they lay awake at night. So these two prison mates of his that he's supervising come to him. They're dejected dreamers, the cupbearer, the baker, and their depression, their sadness is showing and Joseph notices it. Now they're in prison because Pharaoh is furious with them. So they probably took these dreams as would be the case often in their culture as omens indicating death for them. Regardless, Joseph notices their dejection, how sad they are, and he asks them about it. They explain that they've both had dreams and that there is no one to interpret them. Now, Egypt at that time had a science, an exact science, if you will, about interpreting dreams. They had people that had so studied dreams and their interpretations that they had books which cataloged dreams and they would take these dreams that were cataloged and then they would watch history and they would look at how a dream was fulfilled and they would say okay so this type of thing in a dream means this based on history this type of thing means this and so they it was a science to them it was cause and effect as far as they were concerned and so they they had this down to a science the problem is these two guys who used to would have had access to all those people to help interpret their dreams have no access to any of that because they're in prison so they're like we've had these dreams we're likely to die we don't even know what they're about nobody can help us 
And what does Joseph say? Ah, what's the big deal? Not what's the big deal because I can interpret dreams. No. What's the big deal because, oh, and the interpretation of dreams belongs to God. He don't need none of your stinking books. He's good without those. So God can do that. Joseph's had no training. He's had none of the, he has none of these books. And he doesn't even claim that he can interpret dreams. But he has not lost his faith in God. Now, that's telling. In last week's scene, his righteousness was tested and he passes the test. And he's rewarded with prison. <laughs> now we see that his faith, which has been tested and tried, has passed the test. He still trusts in God. And his wisdom is being tested too. I don't know if you've ever run into the Christian who's so quick to say, hey, you know, if something comes up. You know, I've got the gift of discernment. So let me tell you something, you know. Joseph didn't say, you know, I've got the gift of discernment. He wasn't so arrogant as to assume that he had the gift of discernment. No, he, he told them where discernment comes from, where wisdom comes from. It comes from God. And though he didn't have any gift of discernment, he knew the one who did. And so he was glad to inquire on their behalf. Daniel was the same way, by the way. You may notice that if you read his book. Now, here's the good news. You don't have to have the gift of discernment. All you need is a relationship with the God of all wisdom and knowledge. Amen? He has the gifts, and he'll distribute them as he sees fit. As we're about to see, Joseph is in the place of the forgotten, but he has not forgotten God. Let's look at verse 9. The cupbearer's dream and Joseph's request. Verse 9. So the chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream. He said to him, In my dream I saw a vine in front of me, and on the vine were three branches. As soon as it budded, it blossomed, and its clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes, squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and put the cup in his hand. This is what it means, Joseph said to him. The three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position. And you'll put Pharaoh's cup in his hand, just as you used to do when you were his cupbearer. When all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison house. I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews. And even here I have done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon or in a pit. The dream and its interpretation are pretty straightforward. The most dreamlike oddity, you know how dreams sometimes they just do things that would be impossible in real life. The most dreamlike oddity like that is that he sees the vine. As soon as it buds, it blossoms. As soon as it blossoms, it has grapes and they're ripe. And as soon as he squeezes those into a cup, it's wine. I mean, it's like this instantaneous whoop from one to the other in a matter of seconds that goes on. Joseph interprets it with a very specific prediction. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift uh, up your head and restore you. Now, that, that will either take place or that will not take place, right? I mean, it's, it's a pretty, pretty easy one to test. Either it will or it won't, okay? So Joseph has a request. He's confident that it will, and so he has a request. 
And the way the chapter is written, it sets verses 14 and 15 up, this request of Joseph's, as the centerpiece of the chapter. So, so here in this centerpiece of the chapter where Joseph is making this plea, we, we find a key idea around which the rest of the chapter is built. And his request is this, when you get back to your role, your part in the kingdom, as the king's cupbearer, remember me. Show me kindness. There's this word that we saw last week where it said the Lord showed kindness to Joseph. Hesed, faithful love. It's that word for God's covenant love. Well, he says to him, show me faithful love. Be faithful to me and kind to me. Based on what's happened here, remember me. And then literally, when it says mention me to Pharaoh, it's remember me to Pharaoh. So twice he says, remember me. And then um, without pause, remember me to Pharaoh. He wants to be remembered because he feels as if he is forgotten. And then what does he say? Get me out of this prison! Uses that word house again for prison, but the point is clear. I want out of this place. And then he recounts in verse 15 his unjust story. And in this recounting of the story, you finally get a glimpse into the human side of Joseph. I mean, up until now, he he almost seems stoic, right? I mean, like, this guy can take anything, and he just keeps on going, you know? No feeling. Well, no, you see here, he clearly has feeling. There's this emotion. I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing to deserve being put into a dungeon or a pit. Now, you might say to me, I thought you said Joseph was in a minimum security white-collar prison. Now he says it's a dungeon, or he calls it a pit. Which is it? Well, it does say that. And several times it's been called a house. So, which is it? Well, don't raise your hand. But how many times has your mom or dad, or maybe your spouse, said something like, this place is a pigsty? Now, I'm, you know, say don't raise your hand, but, or point fingers. Stop pointing fingers, okay? I, it's like he said, he didn't say anything about pointing fingers. I, no. Well, nobody's house was an actual pigsty, right? There's no pigs living there, any of that. But it expresses emotionally what they're, what they're feeling in that moment. If I'm in Joseph's shoes, I, I don't care if it's a Motel 6, and it ain't. I'd likely... Uh, say something to the effect of, I've done nothing wrong to deserve being in this hellhole. Because that's what it would have felt like to him. When he says pit, think grave, think place of death, think Hades, think any of the above. This is a place of darkness for him. It's unjust. And even if it was a literal pit, it's also an emotional pit. Throughout the Psalms, the, the word used for that place, in, it, it, the same word for pit is used for that place in which our lives are ebbing away. Think of these places. Psalm 28.1, to you, Lord, I call. You are my rock. Do not turn a deaf ear to me. For if you remain silent, I will be like those who go down to the pit. Joseph is in that place where it seems as if God is remaining silent. 
Or how about Psalm 30, verse 3? You, Lord, brought me up from the realm of the dead. You spared me from going down to the pit. Or Psalm 40, verse 2, he lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. Or Psalm 88, verse 4 and 6, I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like one without strength. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. And then finally, Psalm 143, verse 7, answer me quickly, Lord. My spirit fails. Do not hide your face from me or I'll be like those who go down to the pit. I think those psalms give us a glimpse into Joseph's emotional state. Yes, he was in a jail, a a dungeon potentially. Not a literal pit, but as it were. It's interesting, though. The word he uses there, and I think this is the narrator trying to clue us into something here. The word he uses is the same word that's used when his brothers threw him in that empty well in a cistern. It's the same word, a pit. When he's waiting to be sold into slavery because he wants us to pick up on the idea that Joseph, no matter how faithful he is, keeps landing in a pit. Now that doesn't sell books. But it may relate to your experience. And you might think to yourself, where's God in all of this? Why are you remaining silent? If you remain silent, I'll be like those that go down to the pit. Lord, lift me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire. Put my feet on the rock. Maybe that's your prayer. Joseph, understandably, that would be his prayer. He's in the place of the forgotten and does not want to be forgotten any longer. It's the chief baker's turn now. Look at verse 16. When the chief baker saw that Joseph had given a favorable interpretation, he said to Joseph, I too had a dream. (laughs) And now he's interested. (laughs) Oh, that turned out pretty good. (laughs) I too had a dream. Oh, on my head were three baskets of bread. Literally, three baskets of white bread. So, really, this is a story about how white bread will kill you. (laughs) Causes cancer. (laughs) You see, we got to be careful, right, when we're reading our Bibles a lot of people wanting to turn our Bibles into books on dietary. That was never the point, okay? Just FYI. Just move on. <laughs> on my, uh, or in the, in the top basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. Seems so odd. Oh, this is what it means, Joseph said. The, the three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head and impale your body on a pole. And the birds will eat away your flesh. Never mind. <laughs> I, I didn't tell you. I didn't ask you, did I? What my dream? I, I, I did. Okay, well. I mean, Baker Boy here sees that the small yay gets a favorable interpretation. That's the fancy guy, fancy title for a guy who tells you what the wine tastes like, right? So he's all ready to hear it. And he tells this story. 
And in this scene, the birds are eating out of the baskets on his head. Now, by the way, in dreams, birds on your head, not a good thing, okay? <laughs> not a good thing. That, 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 I don't need their books to know that, okay? <laughs> and it indicates both neglect that he would let them eat this without shooing them away, and the fact that there are birds there, an omen, danger. Now, just in case you don't want to believe me on that, which I can understand why not, we might be reminded of a story in the book of Genesis in chapter 15 in which the Lord meets with Abram, and he's making the covenant with Abram. And he tells him to bring five sacrificial animals, three mammals and two birds. And after cutting the mammals in half, he lays them and the birds on the ground. And it's a form of a covenant ritual that, he, that the Lord is making with him. So he's doing, the Lord says, do it. I'm putting it there. What are you going to do with these, Lord? Uh, well, you, you, you watch them. And So what does Abram do? Birds, vultures, keep trying to come and eat these dead animals. And so what's Abram doing? He keeps shooing away the vultures and keeping them from eating this sacrifice of the covenant that is there. Well, imagine how bad it would be if Abram just sat by watching while the vultures ate the, the animals. That would not have been good. It would have shown neglect on Abram's part. But then also notice there's a certain omen sense even in that scene that comes with these vultures that are arriving that he has to shoo away. Uh, Abram, uh, the Lord tells Abram there in, in chapter 15 verse 13, know for certain, and this is immediately following the scene where he's chasing away the birds, the Lord tells him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. So, so that's accompanying what we would generally call bad news. Right? Oh, yeah, your grandchildren, they're going to be enslaved and mistreated. I, I would consider that bad news. And so you see that there. The birds coming down and eating off his, uh, of his head is not a good sign. So... Uh, what's the interpretation? Within three days, Pharaoh's going to not lift up your head, but lift off your head. A little different. Up, off. I mean, it's just one word, and one's three letters, one's two letters. Not that big a deal. <laughs> um, but a big difference. Joseph is in the place of the forgotten. But he's also in the place of God's promise. And let's look at that here. Look with me at verse 20. Now the third day was Pharaoh's birthday. And he gave a feast for all his officials. He lifted up the heads of the chief cupbearer, the chief baker, in the presence of all his officials. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position so that he once again put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. But... He impaled the chief baker, just as Joseph had said to them in his interpretation. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. Now, the foreshadowing of the gospel is all over this story. I've been pointing it out along the way. But do not miss that the foreshadowing of the gospel is all over this story. The innocent one, Joseph, is suffering in the place where the guilty suffer, as Christ did for us. In fact, he is between two guilty ones, as I pointed out earlier. One who will be restored to his part in the kingdom, the other who will not. Just so familiar. 
Joseph has a request that he be remembered when he is restored to that kingdom. All of this is played out in the gospel story. You see, God has this unique ability to use historical events to write things because he controls history. That then help us recognize what he's doing when we get to the important part. So that we can have confidence in the gospel. And then we're told, verse 20, now on the third day, that this restoration happens on the third day. I mean, maybe I'm crazy, but that just sounds awfully familiar. Now, why does it happen on the third day? Well, because it's Pharaoh's birthday, or more likely, same word translated birthday could be anniversary, and and most likely it's the anniversary of his ascension to the throne, which is a time when the pharaohs would frequently grant amnesty to criminals. So it's not that they were... The cupbearer was innocent, but he just decided, I'm granting you amnesty. With the baker, on the other hand, he didn't. <laughs> I'm going to just make him part of the festivities of the, of the day. After much celebration, he probably had too much to drink. And he lifts up their heads. But the pun has worked here. Before his officials, he... One case, he's lifting up in the same sense of the, the Lord is the lifter of our heads. In the other case, he's lifting up his head right off his shoulder. Now, you might ask, it says they impaled his body. Did they take off his head or impale his body? But remember, in the interpretation, Joseph said they would take off his head and impale his body. And the answer is both. They, in that time, they didn't use impaling a guy on a pole as a means of execution. But they did take the executed criminal and put his body on a pole and let the birds of the air eat it and let the worms uh, eat it so that everybody could see what happened to the one who did whatever it was to Pharaoh. That's what the guilty get. Interestingly, if we fast forward to the story of John the Baptist who was in Herod's prison... We find him suffering for righteousness just like Joseph. But John the Baptist experiences the same fate as the baker in this story. A very similar scene. A birthday party or some festivity going on. And then we read this, verse 22. Just as Joseph had said to them in his interpretation. Now, you might wonder why I titled this third section, Joseph in the Place of God's Promise, when by all appearances, he still looks like he's in the place of the forgotten. In fact, he is forgotten in the very last verse. So you might say, why'd you call it that? Well, admittedly, the two sections really we could say just overlap because it's still in the place of the forgotten. But while he's in the place of the forgotten, he is in the place of God's promise. You say, what do you base that on? Well, let me explain. Because of what we read in verse 22, Joseph now knows something. You see, we're told that Joseph's interpretations came to pass just as Joseph had interpreted them. He's not merely a dreamer, he's a prophet. Prophets often had prophecies that would, take, would be fulfilled way off in the distant future. Think of Isaiah, think of Jeremiah. Prophecies that would be fulfilled way off in the distant future. For instance, Jeremiah talked about, you know, 70 years from now, this is going to happen. But they also had prophecies that would be fulfilled in the immediate. 
And so you would know, the people of Israel knew, well, if they were accurate on all their immediate prophecies, then you can rest assured that their distant prophecies are true too. Joseph has this prophecy about how one day his brothers are going to bow down to him. I would imagine by now he's beginning to wonder if he was a prophet or a dreamer. But God gives him the interpretation of these dreams that are in the immediate and they come to pass exactly as the Lord told them. Now he has confidence in the promise of God. And so though he's in the place of the forgotten, he probably suddenly realizes he's not forgotten. He is indeed in the place of God's promise. And he probably has no idea how it's going to come to pass, but he knows it will. Amen? You might be in a place where you have no idea how God's promises are going to come to pass, but you can rest assured they will. Joseph knows. You and I have a promise through the gospel that despite whatever suffering we have to endure, that one day you will rise again. You will rise again. And the same one who gave us that long-term promise also told us that he would rise on the third day. He said, whoever believes in me will not perish, but will have everlasting life. And oh, by the way, they're going to kill me and I'll rise on the third day. He rose on the third day, so we also know that the other promise is sure. Amen? And so in the midst of our own suffering, we can endure. John Piper said the following. He said, darkness comes. In the middle of it, the future looks blank. The temptation to quit is huge. Don't. You are in good company. You will argue with yourself that there is no way forward. But with God, nothing is impossible. He has more ropes and ladders and tunnels out of pits than you can conceive. Wait. Pray without ceasing. Hope. Hope is vital in that pit. Joseph gained hope because he recognized that God's promises were true. We can recognize that God's promises are true. God gives us hope. Now Nietzsche, on the other hand, at least was honest about his atheism. I'll give Nietzsche credit for that. And, And he said, Hope, in reality, is the worst of all evils because it prolongs the torments of man. Okay? If there is no God, then he is right. We should never have hope. Was Joseph merely prolonging his torment, or was he fulfilling God's purpose? We know the end of the story. We know that he was fulfilling God's purpose. Was Jesus merely prolonging his torment, or was he fulfilling God's purpose? We know the rest of the story. He was fulfilling God's purpose. Was Immaculate Ilabagiza, a young woman in Rwanda in the middle of a genocide, was she merely prolonging her torment for 90 days, hiding in a 4 by 5 bathroom with five other women from those who were hunting her down by name, looking for her? In, in conditions that you can't even imagine? Was she merely prolonging her torment? 
Or was she clinging to the rope of God's promise as she prayed without ceasing? Well, she would tell you the latter. Knowing that, that he is in the place of God's promise and therefore having hope, this becomes all the more important for Joseph since Pharaoh's cupbearer does not remember Joseph. He does not show him any faithful love. Now the cupbearer not only sinned against Pharaoh, but he sinned against Joseph. Now, if you're an unbeliever here today, maybe like Nietzsche, you have come to think that hope is a meaningless tease. If that's you, listen. Listen closely. Because Jesus Christ took the place of the guilty uh, of guilty humanity, which, by the way, is all of us, not just you. It's all of us. We're all guilty. But because Jesus Christ took the place and stood in the place of guilty humanity and was raised on the third day, we have uh, the assurance of the promise that whoever trusts in him will live even though he dies. Even though we have to pass through death, we will live forever. You know, the Olympics this past week brought me a, a, a vivid reminder of just how fleeting our lives really are. Beautiful, beautiful for the moment and gone before you know it. I, you might say, what, what about the Olympics did that? Seeing Scott Hamilton as he was one of the announcers on the figure skating. Because I remember Scott Hamilton when he won the gold medal. And seeing old chubby and bald Scott Hamilton now, I can barely recognize that the two are the same person. Yeah, I'm speaking about me too, but I'm just saying. (laughs) Our lives are like the flowers of the field. What happens next? Like Joseph in Egypt, Jesus proclaimed light to the world. And he interprets, Jesus interpreted your deepest fears and wonderings. Jesus speaks about what is elsewhere described as both the first and second death. We all experience the first death. We all will die. But Jesus promises that for those who believe in him, we then go on living. But for those that reject him, there's a second death. You see, none of us want to go through the first death because it's the process of dying that is painful, right? We all think, well, being dead is not so bad, but it's the process of dying. Well, the second death, that's where you live eternally in the process of dying, And unless we trust in Christ, because we've rejected God and rebelled against Him, that's what awaits us. So it isn't just the process of dying that we should fear. Like the two cellmates of Joseph, we will all be raised up. Some will be raised to everlasting life. Some will be raised only to experience the second death, a place of torment. And it's only by swearing allegiance to Jesus, by clinging to Him, that we can have life. Jesus, the the innocent, suffered on the cross for your benefit. He too was in the place of the forgotten when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in the place of God's promise at the same time, a promise that God would raise him, a promise that, that God would save the world through him. He fully obeyed God and made a way, a new and a living way, to God for all of us, to have relationship to God. 
All of us now have access to God's promises, one of which is the resurrection. Another is that he will work everything together for good for those who love him, including the suffering that we might be enduring. Brothers and sisters, maybe you've been in the the place of the forgotten. Maybe it's in a marriage. Maybe it's forgotten by your children. Maybe it's in life. Maybe you will be in the place of the forgotten in the future and you don't know it yet. Maybe right now you feel quite remembered, but one day you'll be in the place of the forgotten. Well, this sermon should still be with you, I trust. Bring it to mind, these truths from Genesis 40. And maybe you're there unjustly, just like Joseph was. Listen, if you know Christ, you are in the place of the promise, of God's promise and God's purpose. And God will vindicate you. That's His promise. And He will right every wrong. That's His promise. Now, this text should give all of us confidence in the gospel. How? Because God is the only one who can write His story with the events of history. And He's written that story, that story of redemption of a people, that foreshadows another story, the main story of redemption for all people. You see, in the story of the redemption of Israel, the story of Joseph, which is part of that story, he's writing the story of the redemption of all humanity, which then we see in the gospel, which is why these parallels are there, so that we can see what God is doing. 1,700 years in advance of Jesus' coming, these things are happening and recorded for our uh, awareness that we might have confidence in the gospel. So that we might see God's divine stamp on the real thing when it arrives in Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this account of Joseph, this account of these events written so far in advance of Christ and His coming, Point us to the promise that you offer us in Jesus Christ. And whether we've believed in it yet or have believed in it for years, we need that promise. We need to cling to that promise and we can have assurance of its truth. So Holy Spirit, I ask that you would work in each heart here. To help us to trust in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.